You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Paul makes a connection here in um, chapter 4. Beginning in verse 12, look at what he says, Galatians 4.12. He says, brothers and sisters, I entreat you, or I, or I beg of you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are, and you did me no wrong. Paul's making sort of this empathetic connection with his readers, the readers of this letter. And perhaps you remember back in 1 Corinthians when we, when we studied there, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul made the the statement to the church where he said, to the Jews I became as a Jew, and and to the Gentiles as a Gentile. And his whole purpose was to say that regardless of cultural differences, in the right context, Paul is saying, I will do whatever is necessary to make the connection with someone so that I can preach the gospel to them. Now, that, that has its limits, of course. And the limits are that we don't do something sinful with the excuse of saying, well, I want to bring the gospel to someone. That's like saying, saying you know, someone saying they're going to go into a bar and get drunk with people so that they can evangelize them. That, those two things don't work together. That's in opposition against itself, right? And so Jesus said, a house divided against itself can't stand, right? It wasn't Abraham Lincoln. It was actually Jesus. Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus when he said that in regard to the Civil War. But Paul says here, you know, he's, he's kind of throwing back to that idea that it's like, hey, uh, I became as you are, so I beg you, become like me. And like I said last week at the end of our time, all Christians should be able to say that in some sense. Not in the prideful, hypocritical sense that says, hey, be like what I think I am or be like what I say that I am, but all Christians in some way should be able to say to someone else for the sake of the gospel, hey, I've got a heart and a love for Jesus. I would hope that by the example that I set, you would want to come along and, and pursue Jesus too and love Jesus too. And that's the connection that Paul's making here is that he has become like these Gentile believers. He's drawing the distinction between the Jews and the legalism that was required of the Jews and the freedom that these Gentiles get to experience because of the gospel that he's preached. And so he says... Um, he says, you did me no wrong. And, and he, he's, he's affirming them that they received him well. And that because they received him well, they should continue to copy him, continue to pursue what life looks like based on what Paul shared in light of the gospel. He's begging them, exhorting them to remain in the grace of Jesus Christ that was shown to them. Verses 13 through 20 we covered on Sunday in regard to Paul's perplexity, the thing that was causing him this anguish. And again, that's a life-changing idea if we're willing to latch onto it, if we're willing to give ourselves over to this understanding, how we view the world around us, but very specifically, how we view other Christians. Because, like I've said many times, I'm first in line when it comes to, hey, let me critique or criticize or, or tell other churches, other traditions where they're wrong and why the things that I've been taught and that I believe and that I understand of Scripture are the right way to do things. The life-changing truth is this. 
Paul says, I'm in anguish because of you, because you are not fully birthed, is the idea. He's waiting until Christ is formed in the Galatians. Now, the truth is, is that all of us are being formed in the image of Christ as we pursue him. As we study the word, as we pray, as we seek fellowship with the spirit, fellowship with one another, we're all being formed as we walk with Jesus and it takes a long time to consistently look like Jesus. If we would sort of get that and understand that, what that changes in our life is how quick we are to criticize other people. How quick we are to, to point at somebody else's fault, especially in the church. Because remember, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters can be brutally mean to each other. They can say things that maybe they're true, but they do it in a way that's not very gracious and not very loving. And so we as Christians have to remember that, that as the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ, man, we're to speak the truth in love with one another. So take a look at verse 21. It says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? There is a glitch in our human DNA, and it's a result of, of course, sin and, and the fall, but it's in all of us, and it's this thing called guilt. Guilt is a glitch. It's, we're not supposed to be, we weren't created to have guilt in our lives. When we were in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, our father and our mother, our human father and mother, when they were in the garden, remember how it says that they were naked and not ashamed? They were before the Lord in their full nature, human nature, with no guilt, no shame. It was just pure fellowship with God the Father. But because of sin, we now have this little glitch in our DNA, this little thing that everybody experiences when we know we've done something wrong when we've transgressed, when we've sinned, we all experience guilt to a certain degree. All you have to do is remember back to when you were a kid. If you had siblings, if you're an only child, it's a little bit different, but, but, but you've still experienced this in other ways. But the best, excuse, or the best example that I can remember is when I was arguing or messing around with my sisters and I did something wrong, right? And typically for me when I was a kid, I was trying to do wrestling moves on them and they didn't want me to do that. But I would try and pick them up and body slam them and do all those kinds of things. And that didn't go over very well. But as soon as I did something wrong and I knew by their reaction that it was wrong, I had messed up and they were about to run and go tell mom or dad, what was my reaction? My reaction was guilt, and the reaction was this, I'll do anything you say, just don't go tell on me, right? Has anybody ever experienced that, right? Everybody should have hands up. Like, like, listen, I know I did something wrong, and I know if you tell, I'm going to get in trouble, okay? And, and so whether it was, you know, grounding or spanking or whatever the case might have been, so you know guilt is there when we go, oh no, don't tell because I'm going to get in trouble. Now, some parents, in terms of how they reacted, in terms of when a kid gets in trouble, maybe it was spanking, maybe it was a timeout, maybe it was grounding, but do you realize that, that the worst punishment to a kid oftentimes was this? Not, I'm so angry at you and I'm yelling at you or I'm going to bend over, I'm going to spank your bottom or whatever the case might be. Sometimes the worst punishment was this. I'm so disappointed in you. 
because, exactly right, it was like a dart to the heart because you're going, ah, just, just beat me for a little while. I'll feel better about the fact that I messed up, right? Like, I feel like I want to pay a penance of some kind. I want to do something to get back into your good graces. That often is the result of guilt. That's how, and, and, and here's the messed up thing. A lot of us in our faith, a lot of us in our pursuit of Jesus, in fighting against sin, when we have sinned, we respond the same way to the Father. I messed up. I said something I shouldn't have. I, I did something I shouldn't have. I have transgressed. I've sinned in some way. God, let me make it up to you. And, and we think, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll Start going to church and I just won't stop. And I'll be there all the time. Anytime the doors of the church are open, I'll be there. Or I'll make sure that I give extra this month. Or I'll make sure that I do something nice for someone. Because that's somehow, we, we think because of our guilt, going to get us back into God's good graces that somehow we could earn God's favor. But listen to this. Remember, I've said this before and I'm going to continue saying this all summer. God will never be more or less happy with you than he is with his son Jesus Christ. This is why I say that Jesus is everything. God will never be more or less happy with you than he is with his son, Jesus Christ. Here's why. God shines a light upon Jesus. A dove descends upon him, representing the Holy Spirit as he comes up out of the waters of baptism as John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And a voice from heaven, this is my son. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. If you and I find ourselves in Christ, in the faith, then because God is pleased with Jesus, he's also pleased with us. Period. Now, that doesn't exclude us. Paul will say this in a little bit later on, not to use our freedom as a license to sin. No, sin is wrong. But, the, but here's the thing that we have to hold on to. Here's the thing we have to grasp is that even now as we're fighting sin and we find ourselves in an imperfect state when we sin, it's not as if God is sitting up there going, you were doing good for a while, and there you go again, sinning. That's not how God responds to us. Remember, he sees us through the picture of his son Jesus. So in the way that God is pleased with his son Jesus, he's pleased with us as well, which... When we hold on to that knowledge that God is pleased with us, that should drive us not to see how far we can run away from him and see what we can get away with, but no, how much more we can run toward him because we have this blessing of relationship with him. And so when Paul says in verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It's as if he's in this, still in this perplexity, this, this confusion of like, do you guys not understand the beauty of the grace that you have in relationship with the Father through Jesus? Why would you run, want to run back to 613 rules and regulations that you can't even follow? Your forefathers couldn't follow them. They couldn't maintain them and fulfill them. What makes you think you can? There's nothing beyond God's grace that's going to make us right or feel better about our standing before the Lord. When we're in Christ, we have this full freedom. Paul goes on to explain this in verse 22. 
And he refers back again to the Old Testament, the authority of Abraham, the father of this nation. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, anytime the word mentions the flesh in regard to spiritual things, it's in regard to sin. When, when we talk about the world, the flesh, uh, Babylon, all these different images throughout Scripture, it's a representation of sin, the world's system. Okay, And so in verse 24, he says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now let's go back real quick here. If... if you haven't gone back and read this story in a while. I would encourage you to do this, to go back into Genesis. I've been recently reading through Genesis, and it's, it's always good to go back to these origin stories. You know how in superhero movies now, the whole Marvel thing, everybody's got an origin story? There, there's this backstory that tells how a person got to where they are and what their context in life was and what their superhero powers were, all those kinds of things. Origin stories are a big deal. It's a big deal for us, too, to go back and look to where it was that we came from. That's why it's important to read through the Old Testament and know that. Now, here's the thing. Paul references back to Abraham and the two sons that he had. So just as a reference point, I want, to, I want you to take note of these things. You don't have to turn back there. We're not going to read uh, uh, any of that. It would take too long. But when you look back at Genesis, beginning in Genesis 15... Genesis 15, we see God making his promise, establishing a covenant with Abraham. And that was that unconditional covenant that God was going to, through Abraham, make a great nation, right? And it was going to be through his offspring. Remember, not plural, not offsprings, but through the promise of his offspring, which we know as Jesus, right? Coming from Abraham. And so in Genesis 15, you see God's promise. But in Genesis 16, here's the deal. What we see in Genesis 16 is Sarah, Abraham's wife, and her persistence. See, remember Abraham and Sarah, they were really old. Abraham was like 100 years old, and Sarah was like 90 years old. And God comes and tells them, you're going to have a child. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. She's like, I don't think so. Now at this age, my womb's been closed this whole time. I've been barren my whole life. Now you're going to give me this joy of having a child when I'm an old woman and I got to chase around a little baby and all these kinds of things, right? Sarah had this persistence that said, uh, okay, God, you gave us your promise, but, but we're going to do it our way. And so what did she do? She gave her handmaiden, her servant, her slave woman, Hagar, to go into her husband, Abraham, and say, you lay down with my woman over there, and, and she'll conceive a child, but it'll be ours. This is how God's promise will be fulfilled. See, I figured it out. God said to trust him and to do what he wants us to do, but I've figured it out. See, I know better than God, because I'm too old, and I don't actually believe that God can do what he said he's going to do. So let's figure it out for ourselves. So you go sleep with Hagar. Now, Abraham, come on, man. This is like the father of the faith. And he's like, okay, just dummy. Come on, bud. 
right? He's already tried to sell off his wife as, as his sister several times to avoid persecution earlier. Well, a guy just, if that doesn't encourage you to think that God can use any of us for anything that he wants to do, I'm not sure what would. These guys, the patriarchs, man, they were, they were powerful in faith, mighty in faith, but boy, they did some silly, dumb things. So in Genesis 16, we see Sarah's persistence where she's trying to make things happen of her own power and of her own ingenuity. And then in Genesis 17, what we see is God's promise renewed. He again tells Abraham, no, it's going to be the way I say it's going to be. Your wife, Sarah, is going to be the one that bears a son. She's going to be the one that gives you an heir. And ultimately, it comes to pass. And it happens that they have Isaac. Now, in Genesis 21, here's the problem. Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar, He's already been born, and he's being raised in Abraham's household. And then Isaac is born. The son of promise is born. And Ishmael looks at Isaac with contempt, and he mocks him. And Sarah says, this ain't going to stand. Abraham, you get rid of Hagar and her son Ishmael. I'm not going to share the glory and honor that my son gets in your household with that other woman. I need you to hear this. The root of all of the trouble that we have in the Middle East, Jews versus the surrounding regions, all of the trouble in the Middle East comes back to Genesis 21. That's the conflict that has ignited this hatred of God's people throughout history. Now, there will be all kinds of political commentators who will try and state other reasons, socioeconomic and political and militaristic issues, the issue of what's going on in the Middle East is 100% spiritual. There's no other explanation for it. It comes back to this. And now here's the thing. Do, you, do we realize when we read a story like Abraham and Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Ishmael, do we take that in and understand that most of the problems in our lives are caused by us not trusting and obeying God's promises. When you go back and read the Old Testament stories and you look at how often God would make a promise or he would ask something of his people and, and promise blessing to them if they would simply obey and walk with him and yet they would try and go make things happen on their own. And that's when the trouble starts is when we don't trust in God's promises. See, for Sarah, she's 90 years old. She's thinking, I'm at the end of my life. God, we got to speed this timetable up. I know you've promised that I'm going to have a son, but come on, really? And here's the deal. If she would just sit still and be patient and wait, God's timing is always right. It's always perfect. His word never fails. If he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's going to happen when he wants it to happen, not necessarily on our timetable. Man, the same is true for us. Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us. That as we go out into the world making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he says, lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He promised his Holy Spirit to be the comforter and the counselor for us. Why do we fear? Why do we not trust? It's because we try and do things on our own without believing that what God has said is true when we have an entire compendium, we have an entire encyclopedia of knowledge here in the scriptures that says over and over and over again, God is faithful. It proves true again and again. Now, look at verse 24, Galatians 4, 24. 
This is important. He says, now this, Paul writes, now this may be interpreted allegorically. He's going to make a statement, and he's going to compare Hagar and Sarah, the, 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 the promise of God through Sarah versus the fleshly attempts at achieving what God said would happen through Hagar. And he's going to tell this story, and he's going to compare them to these mountains, if you will. But he says, this is allegorical. Meaning, this is a story, this is poetic, it's hyperbolic, and it leads us to an understanding of something spiritual. The same is true when Jesus speaks about parables, when he tells all these stories, right, in in the gospel accounts. He's using a story that's very earthy, very practical, very much we can relate to, but it's for the purpose of learning something that's spiritual, okay? But here's our warning, and here's where we have to be careful. Not everything in Scripture can be taken to mean something spiritual. Sometimes people read the Bible, and they're looking for an answer to something in their life. They've got a conflict. They've got a problem. There's an issue. So they say, I should go to the Scriptures. And what happens is we end up proof texting, which means I find a verse that I feel answers my issue without understanding why that verse was written the context it was written in, who it was written to, what was going on at that time. Remember, as always, the text of Scripture cannot mean something today that it did not mean when it was originally written. Now, the truth of Scripture has application into all areas of our life. But taking Scripture as justification for something that we want that doesn't match up with the purpose for it is wrong. John Calvin says it this way. He says, Paul was clearly guided by the Holy Spirit here in telling this allegorical story. For us, we must be careful about reading allegorical or symbolic things into the scriptures. Scripture, they say, is fertile and thus bears multiple meanings. Calvin says, I acknowledge that scripture is the most rich and inexhaustible font of all wisdom, but I deny that its fertility consists in the various meanings which anyone may fasten to it as his pleasure. Let us now then know that the true meaning of scripture is the natural and simple one and let us embrace and hold it resolutely. And so when we read this, it's an example to us of how we need to not um, take scripture out of context. And Paul defines very clearly what he's doing. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. Verse 24, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. And she's relating her to Mount Sinai. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Why is Mount Sinai uh, significant? It's where God delivered the law to Moses. Okay, So Hagar is a representation of the law. The law is always in reference to the flesh mankind's effort to be righteous on their own, which we know is impossible, right? It's impossible for us to fulfill the law. And so Hagar represents the covenant of the law because the law was all about doing something yourself. Abraham and Sarah missed the boat regarding God's promise and tried to make the thing, having a child, happen their own way through their own effort, By trying to do something yourself, it's the epitome of legalism. Trying to accomplish what God wants without his help or instruction. And so Paul makes the reference to the present Jerusalem, 
which was the seat of power for the Jews who were enslaved to the law even unto that day. Now the second, second covenant that he makes reference to is in verse 26. But the Jerusalem above, this is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the place where Christ will bring what Christ will bring with him to establish in his reign here on earth when he comes. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul says that this covenant, this this spiritual agreement is the mother of us all and it's found above where Jesus is. This covenant is a heavenly covenant and the fulfillment is in Jesus and what he has birthed in us. That's why we as Christians are referred to as people who are born again. We're born once in the flesh, but we are born again in the spirit. He quotes Isaiah 54 here, rejoice, O barren one. And it's interesting here that he says, for the children of the desolate one, and the one who is desolate would have been Sarah. Her womb had been closed. She hadn't had any children. She was considered desolate at that point. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. See, here's the thing. Remember, God promised this great nation through Abraham's offspring And how interesting in the fulfillment of that through Jesus Christ when we enter into God's family, at this day and age in the world, there are far many more Christians than there are Jews. Do you get the the correlation there? That the promised one, the one who would have children, who even though she was barren, resulting in the offspring Jesus, who we are now a part of the family through, There's more of us than there were of the one who were originally the husband, right? The one who was, uh, who had a husband, who was Israel. Now, verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Ishmael and Isaac, So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. There's a connection that Paul makes here for us that says we are like Isaac, like true Israel, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9. We're not under the law, but under the promise of God through Jesus. And so we live in this manner, this freedom that we have. But because we've received this promise through Jesus, we are now in a place of persecution. Oftentimes, there's this conversation and debate that goes on about what true persecution is. Is persecution actually dying for your faith, where you're in some communist country where they say, you can't gather together, you can't be the church, uh, religion's illegal, and if we see you with a Bible or worshiping Jesus, we're going to arrest you, throw you in prison, maybe behead you, those kinds of things. Yes, that's persecution. But this is also persecution that we have to understand, that within the family of God even, There is persecution for those of us who actually live in the freedom we have in Christ. 
when we have inherited this promise given to Abraham through Jesus, and you and I live with this freedom, this joy, this like God is our father, Jesus is our friend, and we're not holding ourselves accountable to laws and rituals that can't actually save us, that can't actually fulfill God's promise in our life. There are those who would call themselves brothers and sisters in the faith, but who want to persecute us, who want to say, like these Judaizers at the time for the churches in Galatia, if you really want to be in the faith, you have to do things our way. And this is what Paul says, that's not the life that we live. We have a freedom that we get to live into. Look at what it says in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's driving it home here for the Galatians. Stand firm, don't give in. Dig your heels into the freedom that you have and don't be bound to any other form of attempted righteousness. It's like the Israelites that when they left Egypt, followed Moses out into the wilderness as God was going to lead them into the promised land. They encountered difficult things, hard things. And rather than trusting in who, what God had promised to them, they said, oh, we should go back to Egypt. We should go back to Egypt because there, oh, remember when we sat by the meat pots and remember when we had leeks and melons, right? And they're sitting here complaining against Moses and Aaron. And, and, and the thing is, is they were fooling themselves. That's not what life like, was like back in Egypt, remember? We saw the movie. They were getting whipped. They were making bricks out of mud and then no straw. And I mean, like, it was bad news for them back in Egypt. But yet it was familiar and it was like they knew how that system worked. <coughs> And so they would complain and say, we need to go back to Egypt. Paul's saying the same thing here. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've been there. You've given over to sin. Sin was in charge of you your whole life, but then the gospel comes. Jesus comes into the picture. The Holy Spirit comes into your heart. You're saved. You're free now. You're free from the bondage of sin. You're free from the consequence of death. Don't go back to what you used to be. And so he says in verse 2, and I love this. I just like how Paul talks sometimes. In the beginning of verse 2, he just says, look. And my guess is that he says it exactly like that. Look. Right? Maybe shaking his head a little bit and just going, here's the deal. I think that's where we're getting to the end of the letter here. And so I think Paul's boiling it down for him, right? He's still got plenty to say, like a good preacher. He's still got a couple chapters worth of stuff here. But he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, he gets down right to brass tacks because that's the issue. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is powerful. Track with me here. I testify again to every man who accept, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. That's a huge statement. Hold tight on that one. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have, mark this, this is a tough one, you have fallen away from grace. There's a huge debate, and, and we've all heard it at some form. Perhaps we've been in churches that taught this, perhaps not, whatever the case might be. But we've all heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. That if you have believed upon Jesus at some point in your life, whether you were a little kid uh, in, in vacation Bible school like me, or 
if you were an adult and came to Christ later on, that the moment you believed in Jesus, that somehow your salvation is eternally secured, whether or not you continue walking in a way that falls in line with Christ. And so there are a lot of people who believe, once saved, always saved. And yet there are other people who believe, uh, actually, if you confess and believe upon Jesus, then your life is now subject to him. He owns you. But if you reject his ownership, if you reject the grace that he offers you, and you pursue the flesh again, that you can, quote unquote, lose your salvation. Now, here's the real rub. Here's the real challenge. And, 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 and this, is a, this is a part of the whole reform debate, Calvinist versus Arminianist, all these kinds of things, Zwingli, all those guys. But, but, it's, but it's, it's far more biblical than perhaps we give it credit for. You see, because Scripture actually says something that sounds like both of those positions. Jesus says, all whom the Father has given to me, I have not lost any of them except one, the son of perdition. When, when God has placed you into Jesus' hands, Scripture says that no man can pluck you out. There's security. You're his. When you give yourself to him, you're his. And yet we have a lot of evidence of what Paul is saying here. You have fallen away from grace. You are severed from Christ. There is scripture that says, hey, you were once walking with the Lord. Who beguiled you? Who tricked you into believing something other than what I preach to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with, well, the Bible says one thing and it says another. Is it contradicting itself? By no means. Nope. It's not contradicting itself in this way. See, what this really, I believe, corresponds to and is in regards to is what we would call true faith. True faith. When someone believes upon Jesus and they remain devoted to him, obedient to him, walking with him, it's evidence of true faith that that person actually repented, really, really believed upon Jesus, took salvation as their own, and then pursued Jesus and followed with him. Not perfectly. Sin, trouble, backsliding, but it, like King David had a heart for the Lord, was going in that direction. Versus the person who, like in the parable that Jesus shares of the sower, receives the seed quickly, receives the word quickly, and it takes root, and it springs up, and it's like, yeah, look at them. They're excited about Jesus, and they're at the camp, and they're at the worship thing, and they're all over. It's church, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But then something hard happens. The sun hits it, the heat of the sun, the pressure that we get in life, and all of a sudden, they just wither, and they had no root, right? It would appear that that person perhaps had faith in a moment, but not the kind of faith that actually saves a person. Now, Here's the thing. It's good for us to understand that and to have a certain amount of discernment. That's why Paul would tell Timothy, man, don't lay hands on someone too quickly. Just because someone seems excited about their faith and seems like they're energized for Jesus, don't automatically assume that they're going to be consistent and follow through with those things. Let them have some time. Let them go through some things in life and see if they cling to Jesus in those moments or they run back to the law. 
They run back to the things that make them feel comfortable, right? That's why so many young men fail in ministry. There is this model that we see throughout scripture of, of young men being brought in to be discipled and raised up in ministry, but we see so many young men fall. Why? Because they haven't been tested. They may have genuine faith, but maybe they haven't been tested in a way that says, okay, now I'm going to test Jesus. I need to learn to rely on you and not abandon you, not return to the things that make me comfortable. And so, yes, Scripture says both things, and it's not for the purpose of contradicting. And praise be to God that he's the one that judges the hearts of men. He's the one that knows which salvation is true and which is a false faith. He judges those things. But it's important for us to acknowledge and look at these things so that we make sure that what Paul is saying is applied to our lives as well. That we don't turn ourselves over to some form of obligation religiously, thinking that that's what gets God happy with us. Remember, God is no more or less happy with you than he is with his son, Jesus Christ. So when we encounter sin and we feel that guilt and, oh God, I want to make it up to you, let me do something religious and then I'll get back in your good graces. The moment we do that, we're, we're potentially severing our relationship to Jesus. Because listen, when we mess up and we have guilt, it's no, there's no amount of religious activity that's going to actually get us right with God. It's run to Jesus. Come back to the cross. Come back to the table of communion and fellowship that says, Jesus, you died for that sin. It's washed away. I repent, I, I confess, I come back into relationship with the Father. Verse 5, Galatians 5.5, 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. When you are in Christ, nothing matters except for Jesus Christ. He's the pinnacle. He's the focus. He's the center. However you want to say it, however you visualize it for your life, Jesus is it. That's why we say Jesus is everything. It's critical for us to know that. When we, when we understand that, that everything revolves around Jesus. I love that song, Jesus at the center of it all, right? It all revolves around you, Jesus. When we understand that, when we latch on to that, and we understand that, he, that we simply orbit around Jesus, like he's the center of everything in our life, my goodness, that should cause us to not just be thankful. We should be thankful, to not just appreciate him, although we should appreciate him. My goodness, it should cause us to fall in love with Jesus. Cause us to be so willing to just do what he asks us to do because we're so enraptured with him as our savior. I think that's one of the, that's, that's my greatest fear that we would ever be a people who grow cold in our passionate love for Jesus. To, I just, I don't ever want to be a people who just fall into the ritual of coming to church and we did it again and oh, that was encouraging, that was good. Man, I want to be people who love Jesus in such a way that it affects every interaction that we have. And let me just be honest, that makes us really awkward. It's just going to make us really awkward. Last night we were picking up some food over here in Springfield and I got out of the car to go in to get it. 
And this guy was walking his bike, and he said, hey, um, could you spare a buck or two? I was like, oh. And then I started reaching my pocket, and I said, uh, what for? And he kind of looked at me and kind of, well, it's been a rough day, and I just, I need to get something to drink. I need to buy some alcohol. And I went, oh. <laughs> I said, no, I, I can't do that, bud. And, and for whatever reason, I just said, but you really should look into Jesus. And he just looked at me and, was, and said something unkind and then walked away. Now, if I, if, I had, if I was more prepared, I would have said something like my pastor, because Pastor John would have said something like this. He would have been like, what if I had to offer you a drink that if you drank it, you would never thirst again? Yeah. Right? Like, that's, he would have said something like that. He would have been prepared for that. I got to think about that next time, right? <laughs> Jesus is the water of life. You know? <laughs> but, but listen, here's the deal. When we, when we love Jesus, and I'm not, I, listen, I'm not bragging. I'm not claiming anything other than I was given an opportunity and I did my best. I fumbled all over myself. The guy told me to F off. So great. Okay. But here's my point. When we love Jesus, when we make Jesus the center of everything, then every opportunity, no matter where we are, turns into an opportunity for us to share Jesus with someone. And the reality is it's going to be awkward and it's going to feel kind of funny. And we may get told a lot of mean things and a lot of nice things, but remember, we're in that position of persecution because of our freedom and because of our faith. And so there's a certain amount of joy that just goes, cool, all right. There was a seed planted with that guy. Whether he receives it or rejects it, it's up to the Lord. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But do I love Jesus so much and enough that I'm willing to go and be in that place of awkwardness, of uncomfortability? I hope that, that we always have that passion. Look at verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now Paul finishes this point in the next few verses by finalizing his contempt and, and, and his condemnation for those false apostles who were trying to deceive or draw away the Galatian churches from Christ, who were, who were brothers and sisters who had received the grace of God by hearing and believing the gospel. Now, now here's the thing. He says this in verse 7. You were running well. Again, this indication that they had received the gospel and they were pursuing Jesus. You appeared to be doing well. And then he says... Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, the false apostles who said that you needed to be circumcised? Yes, for sure. But I think there's a little bit of a subtext here. Who? Who hindered you? See, someone can come and, and try and convince you of something that isn't true. But at the end of the day, where does the decision lie? With yourself. Who hindered you? You did. You hindered yourself. It's up to you to either obey Jesus and the gospel we've heard or kind of get in the way of your own progress, your own growth in the faith by listening to something that doesn't match up with what God has given us in the scripture. So there's this idea that we can deceive ourselves from doing what is right, often by making the excuse that we think God is asking us to do something that he says is already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then here, Paul uses that famous illustration that, that a little leaven, a little bit of uh, yeast, leavens the whole lump. It, it works its way throughout the entire dough of bread, right? And the parallel, the, the, the example that's given is that, listen, just like a little bit of yeast spreads its whole way all the way through the bread dough, a little bit of sin in your life 
spreads throughout the entire thing. When we say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, nah, it's just a little sin. No, I'm, I'm, God knows. He knows my heart. And so I'm going to allow this little bit of sin. Paul offers the warning, hey, where you give Satan just a little bit of ground, he takes a mile. You give him an inch, he takes a mile. And how many people can give testimony to the fact that, man, there was just this little issue, and yeah, I knew it wasn't right, but I kind of just glossed over it, and I kind of just said, no, nah, it's not that big of a deal. But when it's against God's perfect will for your life, and you allow it to grow and fester, it just becomes this all-consuming, ugly thing that is so horrible that can overtake you and actually lead you to the place of perhaps being severed from Christ, which is a fearful, fearful thing. So to finish in verse 10, it says, I have confidence in the Lord. That's important. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord. He doesn't say, I have confidence in you, Galatians, based on what you were taught. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Whoever it was that caused you to, to be drawn away from the truth of the gospel that I preached, they're going to they're gonna bear a penalty. And verse 11 says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Meaning, if I were to just tell you, hey, it's okay, go ahead and be circumcised, then the cross is of no avail. It does no good at that point because we've returned to the law. And so Paul finishes this statement, powerful statement in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I'm not going to go into the graphic biology of that, but I like the idea that if they're causing problems, if there are people that are coming into the church and causing problems and drawing people away from true faith, they should just do something harmful to themselves. They should mutilate themselves and not be able to reproduce. I've said too much. Paul leaves this final conclusion of entrusting himself and the gospel to the church. And he says, it's not even about you necessarily. I trust that the Lord is going to flesh out the details. The Lord's going to be the one who runs the sieve through his people. And he knows who are his. And he saved those who are his. And he will sustain those who are his as well. So scripture sometimes has uh, challenging things for us to hear. But my hope is, is that anytime we hear something that causes us, us, uh, us to ask, boy, that's, what does that mean? That's tough. That seems to contradict itself. That we would trust that God's authority given to his scripture is enough for us to trust that those things can be reconciled. And so as Paul calls these churches to this truth, to live in freedom, we're encouraged to embrace and live in that freedom that we have in Jesus Christ and then pursue Jesus, have a love for Jesus in all that we do. I'm excited about Sunday where we get to hear about walking in the spirit and not the flesh.